here we are, you and me, in this present moment. Strictly speaking, here you are, since you are hearing a recording and not a live broadcast. This is episode number 35. I really appreciate that you've been listening. If you are new to the podcast, I hope you will go back to the start and listen to the early episodes. What I've been doing is pretty unconventional. In many, in many ways, more like an audiobook provided in series, the way novels used to come out section by section in literary magazines. Of course, in this case, I'm writing and presenting as I go, so there is no promise of well-laid continuity. I like to think of this project as the first draft of my book on consciousness. I can't promise that the book that results, if it does in fact result, will bear much structural resemblance to the podcast. Actually, I can assure you that it will not. It is really important to me to grow my audience for the purpose of getting these ideas heard by the scientific and philosophical communities of the relevant fields. I could use your help in doing this. Please share the podcast with others you know. If you like what I'm doing, give it a positive review. If you can follow me on Twitter at Jesse J. Winters and share my podcast with your followers, I really appreciate it. Seriously, these outreaches can really help. I don't really know how real podcasts with large audiences accomplish it but I suspect that word of mouth is key. Thanks again for listening. I've talked about the present moment in a number of episodes, notably in episode 19 on temporal continuity. The reason for this focus is that the present moment is the thing wherein consciousness exists. When we talk about matter and energy, the objects of our discussion are constant across time. Consciousness is like a window in time and space through which its contents are conveyed. Only that which falls inside the present window can be said to exist at all. Even an episode recalled in the mind from the past is not really the past, but emergent from some neural activities occurring right now. So what can I mean by right now? Not this microsecond. Neuronal firing activity cannot actuate an effect in so narrow a duration. If we were to go from a state of non-consciousness to a state of consciousness, say by delivering to a deeply sleeping subject an injection of norepinephrine directly into the carotid artery, how long would it take for phenomenal consciousness to occur? Ruling out the momentary delay in arterial delivery of our drug just for the sake of discussion, what delay would be required? Not one microsecond, nor one millisecond either. Neurons must activate other neurons and so on. A more plausible experiment involves the detection or failure to detect some stimulus. In his book, your brain is a time machine. Dean Buonamano says, quote, Thunder and lightning are caused by the same event, but with any luck, we perceive them separately because the speed of light is close to a million times faster than the speed of sound. The sound of thunder reaches our ears significantly after the photons generated by the lightning reach our eyes. In other instances, however, the brain must not only process the input streams from the eyes and ears in parallel, but also attempt to align and sync the inputs from both of these sensory modalities." Unquote. A little later he writes, quote, The time span during which the brain integrates visual and auditory information into a single unified percept is called, appropriately enough, the temporal window of integration. Within this window, subjectively speaking, the brain considers the auditory and visual events to be simultaneous. The windows can be over 100 milliseconds. For speech, for example, if there is a mismatch of less than 100 milliseconds between the audio and visual tracks of a movie, it rarely comes to our attention." In this episode, I will bring together several lines of evidence that suggest an estimate of the temporal window for the present moment, rather than a discrete leading edge of present time. This is what William James referred to as a duration block. The evidence will come from retroactive masking, 
binocular rivalry, retroactive timing, and simultaneous experience. In Mind Time, Benjamin LeBay writes, quote, Retroactive or backward masking between two peripheral sensory stimuli has long been known. With a visual stimulus consisting of a small, weak spot of light, a second stronger, larger flash that surrounds the first one can block the subject's awareness of the first one. The second flash has this effect even if it is delayed by up to 100 milliseconds after the initial weak flash. Retroactive masking has also been reported for electrical stimulation of the skin. With a test stimulus at threshold strength on one forearm, a super-threshold conditioning stimulus on the other forearm raised the threshold for the test stimulus. The conditioning stimulus was effective even when it followed the test stimulus by 100 milliseconds, but not when it followed by 500 milliseconds. This retroactive masking at the 100 millisecond interval must be mediated by the central nervous system because the test and conditioning stimuli were delivered via different sensory pathways." Unquote. This, I believe, reveals something very important about the present moment. We do not receive each stimulus in consciousness in the order in which they arrive to their cortical targets. If we did, then retroactive or backward masking would be impossible. Stanislas Stehane and his colleagues performed backward masking experiments to investigate the phase transition that occurs in widespread cortical areas in correlation with conscious perception of a visual target. In Consciousness in the Brain, he writes, quote, in our experiment, we flashed a digit for just a single frame of our video screen, 16 milliseconds, then a blank, and finally a mask made of random letters. We varied the duration of the blank in small steps of 16 milliseconds. What did the viewers report? Did their perception change continuously? No, it followed the all-or-none pattern of phase transition. At long delays, they could see the digit, but at short delays, they saw only the letters. The digit was masked. Crucially, these two states were separated by a clear threshold. Perception was nonlinear. As the delay increased, visibility did not improve smoothly, but showed a sudden step. A delay of about 50 milliseconds separated the perceived and unperceived trials." Dehane's experiment differed from those that LeBay reported on by 50 milliseconds. Importantly, they agree that retroactive masking is effective up to some duration. I suggest that the present moment should be thought of as no less than the duration across which retroactive masking is possible. An initial stimulus is flashed briefly. In Dehane's experiment, it was flashed for 16 milliseconds. If only a blank screen follows, then the subject will consistently report seeing it and will be able to tell you what it was. But when after a short blank interval, a new and larger stimulus appears, the subject fails to see the original and cannot identify it. Either some retroactive amnesia effect has occurred, or as I contend, the present moment encompasses a wide enough temporal breadth to produce a single coherent visual experience. In the latter case, the visual experience is like looking at a Necker cube. Only one or the other confirmation is seen. Speaking of the Necker cube, that simple transparent line drawing of a cube which can appear as either one face coming forward or the other, I think it is reasonable to posit that the phenomenal present moment should correspond to no more than the minimum amount of time that one confirmation of the cube can be observed before shifting to the other. I looked into what this minimum would be. Recall that binocular rivalry, similar to the Necker cube phenomenon, occurs under experimental conditions wherein a different image is presented to each eye. Only one image appears in conscious vision, and which one it is has occasion to alternate. 
I found that work by William Lavelt on binocular rivalry suggests a minimum epoch for seeing one confirmation before it shifts to the other of about 200 milliseconds. Of course, any value higher than that is uninformative for this discussion because objects can remain in view across many moments of conscious experience. Is the binocular rivalry number of 200 milliseconds at odds with the 50 or 100 millisecond delay seen in backward masking experiments? I think not. Remember in Dehane's experiment, the original digit was flashed for 16 milliseconds, followed by a blank of up to 50 milliseconds, followed by the mask image lasting much longer. The total duration block within which these stimuli are contained could in fact be close to 200 milliseconds. My favorite line of evidence comes again from Benjamin LeBay and is described in his book Mind Time in a section titled Antedating of Delayed Sensory Experience. LeBay writes, quote, The evidence appears to show that some appropriate neuronal activities in the brain must endure for up to about 500 milliseconds for even a single pulse skin stimulus in order to elicit a conscious sensory experience. But subjectively, we seem to be aware of a skin stimulus almost immediately with no appreciable delay. So we have a strange paradox. Neural activity requirements in the brain indicate that the experience of awareness of a skin stimulus cannot appear until after some 500 milliseconds, yet subjectively, we believe it was experienced without such a delay. This troublesome dilemma bothered us for some time until I began to think that subjective timing need not be identical to neuronal time. Indeed, we ran an experiment that demonstrated this discrepancy directly. For this test, the train of stimulus pulses was applied to the sensory cortex and required the usual 500 milliseconds of repetition to produce a conscious experience. We then added a single near-threshold pulse to the skin. This pulse was applied at different times after the start of the cortical train in different trials. After each trial, with the coupled cortical and skin stimuli, the subject was asked to tell us which of the two sensations appeared first. The subject reported that the sensations generated at the skin appeared before the cortically induced sensation, even when the skin pulse was delayed by some hundreds of milliseconds after the start of the cortical stimulus. It was only when the skin pulse was delayed by about 500 milliseconds that the subjects reported feeling that both sensations appeared almost simultaneously. Clearly, subjective time of the skin-induced experience appeared to have no delay relative to that for the cortically induced experience. Unquote. A paragraph later, LeBay goes on, quote, The skin pulse el elicits a characteristic response of the sensory cortex that begins with a wave or component about 10 to 30 milliseconds after the skin stimulus. This is the primary EP, which is followed by later EP waves or components. However, the stimulus pulses applied to the surface of the sensory cortex do not elicit any response that resembles the primary EP. This difference in cortical EP responses to the two different sites of stimulus led me to propose a unique hypothesis to explain the paradoxical timings. In this hypothesis, the awareness of the skin stimulus is in fact delayed in its appearance until the end of the roughly 500 milliseconds of appropriate brain activities, but then there is a subjective referral of the timing for that experience back to the time of the primary EP response." Unquote. This is an amazing experiment. I think the subjective referral back to the time of the primary EP implies that the subjective moment encompasses this 500 millisecond period. The duration block is about 500 milliseconds long. This is something close to the duration of one moment of conscious experience. Processing in the brain's networks produces a sense that an event is simultaneous to another event or that something is changing or moving within such a moment. My thinking is that 
if we saw things in their actual immediate order of occurrence in the brain, we would see a person's mouth moving before we would hear the words. We might see the motion of an object before we saw its color. In other words, if not for the temporal window having a substantial duration, our perceptions would lack coherence. Another line of evidence for a present temporal window comes from the perception of simultaneity. Christoph Koch presents the argument in the quest for consciousness in, in favor of discrete rather than continuous perception. I have argued the opposite in previous episodes. I do think that consciousness is continuous in time, but the case is a little more complicated. Koch writes, quote, if two events occurred in two consecutive frames, they would be experienced as taking place one after the other. There have been some ingenious tests of this hypothesis using two flashes of light that on some trials are seen as one and on others as two consecutive flashes. The minimum interstimulus interval for which two successive events were consistently perceived as simultaneous varied between 20 and 120 milliseconds." Unquote. Koch goes on to talk about the suggestion that discrete temporal processing is related to the phase of brain waves in the alpha range, 8 to 12 hertz. As I said, I have argued that consciousness is continuous in time. In order to be convinced otherwise, I would need to see experiments across multiple sensory modalities with the subject judging the simultaneity of, for example, a tone or a sensation on the skin and a visual stimulus. The rationale for an experiment like this is that if consciousness occurs in a series of bins, one after another, then all sensations would have to fall into one or another bin. My strong suspicion is that different modalities have overlapping, non-sequential time frames, just as events in the real world occur over in independent time frames. I propose that the temporal window is normally open across something like 500 milliseconds and continues to renew going forward. It is not a sequence of 500 millisecond bins. We know that much from experience. 500 milliseconds is half a second. We can appreciate musical notes and frames of a movie at a much higher rate than that. Instead, 500 milliseconds represents the context surrounding any given stimulus by means of which that stimulus is used in the creation of conscious contents. This duration enables the brain's association networks to tamper with the incoming data and generate coherent and meaningful conscious contents. It's worth considering the conscious will. If voluntary willful action is possible, then it must be possible to affect willful change within the temporal window, within the present moment. Benjamin LeBay's experiments on voluntary movement and the sense of will to make a voluntary movement should offer some clues. In his book, LeBay describes placing subjects in front of a clock face with a dot rotating around its circle about three times as fast as a second hand on a normal clock. The subject was fitted with a recording electrode over the motor and premotor areas, corresponding to the hand and instructed to perform a flexion of the wrist at any time he or she felt like doing so. They were told not to pre-plan when to act. They were told to note the position of the moving dot on the clock face at the moment of their first awareness of the intention to move their wrist. Over repeated trials, LeBay and his colleagues found that the will to act occurred about 200 milliseconds before the muscle moved, while a signal known as the readiness potential was recorded by the electrode about 550 milliseconds before the muscle moved. In his book Mind Time, LeBay writes, quote, Is it possible that the specific brain activities leading to a voluntary act begin before the conscious will to act? In other words, before the person is aware that he intends to act? This possibility has arisen partly from our evidence that sensory awareness is delayed by a substantial time period of brain activities. 
If the internally generated awareness of the will or intention to act is also delayed by a required period of activities lasting up to about 500 milliseconds, it seems possible that the brain's activities that initiate a willed act begin well before the conscious will to act has been adequately developed. We were able to examine this issue experimentally. What we found, in short, was that the brain exhibited an initiating process, beginning 550 milliseconds before the freely voluntary act. But awareness of the conscious will to perform the act appeared only 150 to 200 milliseconds before the act. The voluntary process is therefore initiated unconsciously, some 400 milliseconds before the subject becomes aware of her will or intention to perform the act." Unquote. This was an astounding discovery. LeBay's further experiments suggested to him that the conscious mind does have willful veto power that can arrest a previously initiated act within the final 100 to 200 milliseconds. If he is right, we have two valuable pieces of data to consider for the sake of the current discussion. First, this implies that the temporal window for voluntary movement is about 500 milliseconds, which is the number I proposed earlier. Second, Willful action occurs within that domain and late in the present moment. I suggested in a previous episode that the perception of time should be linked to the number of events happening in one subjective moment. So under various pharmacological or psychological conditions, its duration should be able to narrow or broaden. That is, I guess, until it finally shrinks to naught and we disappear again into nothing.